probably only going to get into one verse. Uh -huh. That's all I have notes for anyway. Most of it, it's like an intro. Dad, why do you have that paper? It's my okay. notes, sweetie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, now you do. But, uh, you know, we'll see what God does with this, see how far it goes. But, you know, ideally I'd like to get through Genesis and see. But we'll see. God always has better plans. But uh, if that's the case and we get through a study of Genesis, I would entitle the study of Genesis God and Man. God and man, and maybe that's been used before, maybe it hasn't, but, uh, you know, coming to it this time as I was praying about, you know, the study and what to study, and uh, just kept being brought back to Genesis, and as I was coming into it and reading it and just uh, considering it, praying about it, really, uh, I felt like the Lord was showing me maybe a different angle than I had perhaps seen before on Genesis, and, and not, you know, some newfangled, out there, cultic thing, but, you know, as always, but... Really just that, um, you know, it really is a story of God and man. That, uh, and maybe that's obvious to everyone, but it wasn't always uh, so obvious to me. Um, but obviously Genesis is the origin or mode of formation of something, as Google would define it. Let me type in, it's great, you can just type Genesis death, and then the definition comes up, because I don't even have to like type out a definition. Um, but really it tells about how everything came to be, and I think this is obvious, you know, we've been believers for a while. We've all read Genesis. We've probably all seen the felt board in Sunday school with Abraham and Adam and Eve and, you know, the, the fig leaves and all that stuff. But really, it, it tells how everything came to be. Um, and I think so in this sense that it's as relevant to man from God's perspective. That when God gave uh, Moses and gave Adam and Eve and gave the, the whole, you know, oral history and tools written down of Genesis, uh, that it's the things that are relevant to man from God's perspective. That God, as we'll see, doesn't go into the minute detail of how exactly things were created. He lays it out plainly and simply, and I believe clearly and effectively, for everything that we need to know about it. That, you know, sure, we can have time and we need to delve into it and discuss theories and, uh, you know, as we're talking at least about the creation account. But as much for this study that we're going through, I don't really feel led to get into that. I feel to take it at face value, as a simple value, as saying, hey, let's consider this as being God's word. And God telling us what's uh, relevant for us to know um, about it. Um, and I think that with that, it's important to read Genesis as it is. That it's a truthful telling of God for what man needs to know. That Genesis is the truth. It's not, you know, some guy didn't know what to write down and put down. But it's absolutely um, the truth. Can I have a pancake? Sure, sweetie. Thank you. Yeah, don't blame me. It's short time. Thank you. Um, but it starts out, you know, about... Uh, with that, it's about the beginning of time and creation, or before man, the beginning of man, the origin of sin, and the groundwork for God's way out uh, for man and the sin he got himself in. So it tells about creation, tells about man, tells about the fall, and it lays the groundwork for uh, God's redemptive work. And uh, again, this is all simple stuff, but I think it's important to uh, kind of overview. Um, but the rough outline of Genesis would be the creation, fall of man, the spread of man and sin. You know, man falls, man's kicked out of the garden. Man spreads um, uh, over the earth. And then we end up seeing the first worldwide judgment by chapter 6 with Noah and the flood. We see, uh, again, that sin spreads again. We see God begin to reach out to man again in a more personal way. Um, again, with the patriarchs. We see, finally, the end where Joseph goes into Egypt and God brings uh, a fledgling nation of just tribes, really, that pointed just families into nation, uh, into Egypt that would become the nation. Uh, but again, you know, Genesis was an account written by Moses, part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You know, it was obviously a verbal account passed down through the generations, and 
you know, people say, well, isn't that going to change? And, and not, and, but verbal, as we know, verbal accounts were more important than, than they were to us. We have the written word now, but then they tend to pass it down verbally, and it was important, it was accurate. Um, you know, and we'll see, we'll get into the timeline of those things, but um, uh, there's definitely overlap between the generations, so it's not going to be like a game of telephone. Um, but first we see God in the beginning and what he made, and then we'll see God in the garden with the people he made. Then we'll see God outside the garden dealing with the children of the people he made. You know, obviously we see uh, Cain and Abel. We begin to see the generations that pass from there. Cain and Abel? Yeah. Cain and Abel? Yeah. Yeah. I know they don't have a super book for that one. If they do, we don't have it. Uh, but then we'll see God's perspective on the people uh, who begin to populate the earth. We see the way, you know, we get down to... Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we get down to the Tower of Babel, we, we see these other things yeah, go on. And, and, yeah, that's right. And that's, um, we begin to see God talk to himself, like, let me go down and see. I want to see. And he begins to share his heart with Abram. So it's a little bit different than what we see God dealing with people in the beginning. Um, and then uh, we see God dealing with Noah, but then we see a new covenant and see God interact with Abram personally and calls him out of the, of the, the people of the world. We see God personally involved in the lives of the patriarchs. Um, and then we'll get a close look at God intimately uh, behind the scenes in Joseph. Again, we see we don't really see God interacting with Joseph one-on-one. -on -one. We do see dreams. We see God giving Joseph dreams. But Joseph becomes a picture, obviously, of the Messiah to come. So we see Genesis starting with the fall of man and with uh, the promise of the Messiah. And then the end of Genesis, we see a first type of Christ. Where obviously Joseph isn't Jesus, but we see a picture of, of, of God working in uh, Joseph's life to illustrate Jesus to us. Uh, but as we start, you know, uh, what was your beginning? What was your beginning when you were born? What was your life like then, you know? Um, my, my life when I was born was Jesus. Yeah, that's right. He made you, right? You know, what was your morning like today? We are talking about our afternoons and waking up from a nap. I know my afternoon was like groggy. I had to get cleaned up. But what was, what, what was your childhood like? You know, think about your beginning there, and you know, can we see God's fingerprints on our childhoods um, or your marriage, the beginning of your marriage? You know, I remember our first date going to the diner and stacking up creamers, and <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the beginning of our relationship, and how there's st that's still there. There's still that fun aspect there, but there's uh, a deeper knowledge now, a deeper relationship now that it's not. I mean, obviously, it's more important in a sense because we're married now, but in a sense, it's not. It's just more full. And I think in the same way, we can look at Genesis where we can read it over and over and over again. We can study it over and over again and get a, a, a fuller, deeper picture. But it's important that there is that foundation there. There's important that there's a simple foundation uh, involved there. Or what about your education? Um, we were talking about student loans before, or your career. Um, you know, how did you get that beginning? How did you get that knowledge? Was it something that you pursued? Was it something that was taught to you or given to you? Um, but with that, you know, we think about being a kid. And when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But then I found out you needed, like, perfect vision. And my vision started going. So I was like, no, it's not going to work. You know, I want to be an astronaut, firefighter, all this stuff. And then eventually, you know, you figure out what you want to do. Um, but what did you believe as a child? What were the things that you believed in? Whether that's about God, or whether that's about life, or whether that's about anything really. Um, sometimes those things change. And why do those things change from when we're a child to now? Is it, do we learn something new? Were we corrected? 
or are we scarred in some way? What was the catalyst that brought about the change in our belief from being a child until now? Um, and, uh, and I think that that's, again, important to look at Genesis because the foundation of our faith, yes, is Jesus on the cross, but what does God start out with? God starts out with creation, begins to lay a groundwork to tell the story of the cross, to tell the story of his relationship with us, to tell the story of who he is in practical ways, and he starts out, um, as we'll see, in the beginning. And so I think from God's perspective, it's very important that we believe what he says about the beginning. We'll see that that's a very important foundation um, in that. Um, and is it because someone told you, you know, did someone that tell you that you liked, you know, or better, or that you respected better? You know, sometimes we have a relationship with our parents, and then we meet a teacher, or there's someone cool, or there's a professor who, when we're beginning to question our parents and not think they're very smart anymore, some man or a woman comes into our life who claims to be very smart, or other people say it's very smart, and they begin to pour what they believe into our lives, and we begin to take them and what they say over us. We talk about, uh, you know, the statistics about uh, young people who are raised in church going to college and losing their faith. And I question whether they even had faith in the beginning, and obviously statistics tell you what everyone to know, but on a, on a sincere note, you know, there's only, there's one point of view that's not really allowed on campus, and we all know that on television, at work, there's one point of view that's not allowed. Um, but is it just because the textbook says that we believe it? Because a group of people, like society or college, um, you know, why do we believe what we believe? Um, and as believers, I think that that's very important, you know, not only because we live in the last days and things are very dark and up is down and down is up and people say that there is no truth. Um, you know, they were saying that back in Pilate's day too, but uh, do we believe what we believe because God showed you or because man showed you? You know, I can say with Genesis as a special place in my heart, I remember, um, you know, I grew up in the church, I knew the Genesis accounts, I could talk about the felt things in Sunday school, um, and as I wandered from God in my young life, not really knowing him and becoming a teenager, um, I never really believed in evolution, so to speak. I always questioned it. But I then began to try and reconcile it with the scriptures. And then, you know, these are stuff I'd be happy to debate and talk about in, a, in an extra study time. Uh, again, like I said, I want the study to be just face value and, and simple and really focused on who God is as, and his interaction with us as opposed to the minutia of creation. But um, really, as I'm getting saved and God began to, to work in me and show me things and, and, and really restore that childlike faith and going realize, wow, these other things I began to believe or try and fit into what I knew to be the truth really uh, don't need to be fit in there. Um, you know, and ultimately, I think the, the litmus test for that is what is the fruit of what you believe? What is the fruit of what you believe about creation, about God, about your relationships or other? Is it life or is it death? Is it life or death? You know, because a lot of these things, like you get into these other theories, the fruit of it is death. It's always death. It's always the survival of the fittest, or you don't really mean anything, so do whatever you want, and there is no death. You know, so it's like all these things just lead the other way, but when we begin to believe what God says about creation and about the Bible and ultimately about himself, it leads to life. And to start out um, tonight, the first scripture we're going to look at is in Luke, if you want to turn there. It's Luke 6, 43. And uh, I think this is interesting, uh, given uh, what we're about to dig into in Genesis here. But thinking about fruit, Jesus says in Luke 6.43, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. 
for every tree that is known, for every tree is known by its fruit. You know, obviously you go to an orange tree and get oranges. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. There's a, God makes a clear distinction here. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But he says to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. And so it's interesting that Jesus talks about the fruit, about the good heart and the bad heart, the evil heart, and good things are going to come out of a good heart, and evil things are going to come out of an evil heart. Obviously, none of us are purely good in our, of ourselves if we continue to read the scripture. But Jesus is saying that there's no way that if, if you know, if, that if you are good because of God, that evil is going to come out of your life on a regular basis. Obviously, we all mess up in things. But the same way, if, if someone is, is evil, there's no way that something good and holy is going to come out of their heart. There's no way that it's, it might sound holy, it might sound good, but at its root, it's evil. And he says that um, that is important. And because, he goes on with the foundation. It's important to have a foundation built on a rock. And he, he transitions saying, you know, if you hear my words, you call me Lord, why aren't you doing what I say? Why aren't you doing what I say? And I think a lot of times in Genesis, we look at it, we kind of gloss over it. But if we really read it and we look at it, well, this is God. This is God's word. It should be a foundation in our lives. Because we need a strong foundation in our lives. If, if God gave Genesis as a foundation for the whole of Scripture, it should be a foundation in our lives. It, it's obviously not going to save us. You know, Jesus on the cross was like, hey, you know, you'll be with me in heaven once you start believing Genesis. No, it's not foundational for salvation. But I think to build our lives from that salvation, I think having a firm foundation in what we believe in Genesis is important there. And, you know, I won't tell you to believe one theory or another based on Genesis, but really... Believe what Genesis says. Take that to the Lord. Have him, you know, give you a solid foundation in there. Um, you know, I believe what I believe about Genesis, um, and you're free to be wrong. That's okay. But <laughs> just kidding. Um, but really, do we believe what God tells us about how things are? And I think that applies to the whole scripture. I think sometimes we just think that it's like the New Testament and the covenant and things of that nature and the Ten Commandments. But I think that also applies to Genesis. Do we believe what God tells us? about how things are and how things were created? Or do we tend to, to bend it to fit what we believe and how we believe things are or things should be? Like I said, you know how I did. I knew about the scriptures. I believe the scriptures in one sense. But I didn't have a relationship with God in high school. So I began to try and say, well, these people must, this, this science must be right. So how does it work with Genesis? And if you get deeper into studies, you realize they don't really drive together. But I think even Job, who was very smart, he was influential and rich, a uh, very rich man in his time, and obviously it's not the, the first book in the Bible, but it's uh, chronologically uh, probably the oldest account or the oldest story. Um, he struggled with this. You know, it's not really evident throughout all of Job until the very end, and when God begins to call him out on it. You know, obviously Job's very rich, these things happened to him, his friends gave him advice, he wasn't sure, he begins to question God at the end. Um, but let's uh, turn to Job 38 here. I'm not going to do that too. Job 38. 
we do. I'm glad you know that. I, I, I can, I can, I can show you if, I can show you if you watch it if you want it in the morning. Hey, maybe we can do that later. That would be a good idea, man. Come watch that in the morning. But God says in uh, Job 38, and uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but I think we'll probably read the first 11 verses or 12 verses, I think. But it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. He says, Job, let's get real here. You're a man. Let me, let me talk to you a little bit. You want to question me. In verse 4 he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. You know, were you there? Can you tell me? Tell me about it, Job. Who determined its measurements? Surely you must know, or you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? You know, were you the construction guy laying out the plumb line? Did you have your measurements there? Did you have the blueprints? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors, when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds, uh, God begins to take a little credit there. He says, when I made the clouds as garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it, and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, and the wicked shall be taken out of it. You know, God goes on and, and you know, continues to question Job. And he's really questioning Job in a sense where he's like, were you there when I was there? You know, as wisdom says in, in Proverbs, it was there when God created the earth. But Job wasn't there. You and I weren't there. You know, the best we can do is really read the Bible. But from there, you know, really, you could come up with any theory you want. And how is someone really going to prove you wrong? I mean, obviously, there's scientific methods and all those things, but really, at the end of the day, who is there? They believe the Earth was flat for so many years. They believe the Earth was the center of the solar system for so many years, and as we begin to get more and more knowledge, it's all wrong, and they keep changing the times and the dates and all these things. But at the end of the day, who is there? Well, we'll see in a minute. We'll see in a minute. There's only one person there. Um, but let's consider in the Scriptures what God says. Because God was there. And let's come to it with an open mind, an open heart, and open eyes. Because the Bible says things openly. And the Bible says things clearly. And I think sometimes we try and look at it through a lens that's not quite as clear as Scripture would say. But um, in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, uh, we're going to read that in a second. Lord, we, we did again just ask that you would uh, just speak to us in the Scripture and make things clear. And God, we think that it is clear. That God, we don't need to know the minutiae to be saved. Uh, but God, knowing that you made things, and, and that should be enough uh, for a firm foundation in our walk with you, Jesus. <clears throat> but Genesis 1-1, so if you want to turn there, if not, it'll be over in a minute. <laughs> I don't. No? I do. But Genesis 1-1, and we probably all know this by heart, but it says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. And that's as far as we're going to get tonight. <laughs> but uh, in the beginning, because I think there's a lot there. There's a lot there already. You know, in the beginning, it's the word, uh, I can't say it, but Reshith, 
It means first, uh, beginning, or the best, or the chief. You know, this is the first time, the beginning. You know, obviously we think of beginning, naturally we just go, oh, the beginning. We think it's the beginning. It's really, I think, honestly, it's really simple. We don't even need to get into word study. We will, but it's simple. When someone tells you the beginning, it was the beginning. When I say, oh, in the beginning, when Ashley and I first met, you immediately understand what I'm telling you. I don't need to say, well, on the fourth day, or the fifth month, or, you know what I mean? I don't need to be so specific. Your heart and mind immediately go there. I think God is trying to say the same thing uh, in the beginning, in the first time, in the first place, or order or rank. And it's interesting that uh, one of the connotations is specifically a first fruit. And as believers, we're probably pretty familiar with that. That term comes up throughout Scripture a lot. But, you know, James 1.18 says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that God willed through the Scriptures that we as believers would come forth as a first fruit. Romans 11.16 says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches that, again, like a good heart bring forth good things, evil heart bring forth evil things, that at the beginning of something is holy, holy things are going to grow out of it. Holy things are going to come out of it. And uh, I think that that can definitely apply to Genesis. If what we believe about Genesis is holy, only good things, only life things are going to come out of it. If what we believe about it isn't holy, well... You know, if you don't believe God, what God says about Genesis, why would you believe God about anything else? And I think we would all agree on that. But Proverbs uh, 3, nine, honor the Lord your possessions, and with it the first fruits of all your increase. And 1 Corinthians 15.20, But now Christ, you're a, you're a third fruit. <laughs> but now Christ has Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That God loves this idea of new fruits, of new beginning, of new life, and even uh, Jesus is the one who's the first fruit uh, of eternal life. But at the beginning, when was it? You know, I believe, personally believe, it was about 6,000 years ago, based on history, based on scripture, based on even certain ge uh, geographic events. You know, if you look back at the flood, um, I'd have to look up the years, but I think like the oldest coral reef, the oldest forest, the oldest desert, they all have timelines that are very similar being uh, the same time as the flood. Um, you know, others believe other things. Plenty of people have other things to believe about the origin of the universe. If you want to know about that, then ask them what they believe. I'm going to tell you what I believe. Um, and again, you know, what do I believe as a believer? I believe in the beginning, and that's it. In the beginning, God. Whenever that was exactly on the calendar, I can't tell you. I believe it was 6,000 years ago. You, know, you may believe it was millions of years ago. You may believe gap theory. You may have some other, you know, theory that you believe, but in the end, if you're a believer in Jesus, we'll get to heaven and go, oh, uh, you know, we'll find out exactly what it was, and, and that's not a big deal. Um, but what I need to know and what I need to believe is that God knows, and that it was the beginning. For me, that was, I, you know, and I would argue that that's what the Bible teaches. It was 6,000 years ago, um, thereabouts. Um, but that's what we need to know is the beginning. And so if we've established the when, then who's the who? And God, as, God. That's absolutely right. Very good. In the beginning, God. And the word God, Elohim, and you know, obviously we've been believers for a while, we know the word is plural. Uh, it can mean rulers or judges, divine ones, angels or gods. Um, a God-like one, works of God and the true God. Um, but really it has this connotation of the supreme God. You know, I remember being in, in philosophy class in high school, in, high school, in college, and there was the, you know, you talk about theories, well, who created God? Super God. Who created super God? Super, super God, you know. It's just yeah. ongoing of going on. But the thing is, is that 
God is a supreme God. He did not, he was not, sweetie, you gotta sit down. Um, he was not created. He always was. In the beginning, God. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God was created. It just says, God was there in the beginning, and he was always there, and he always will be there. And uh, the, the word El, El, in Elohim, we see that throughout the names of God in the Bible. It's, it means God, like El Chul, the God who gave you birth. El Dia, the God of knowledge. El Elyon, the God most high. El Roi, the God who sees. El Shaddai, God almighty. <coughs> Elohim, the creator. You know, and then we talk God's uh, personal name, Yahweh, the self-existent one. Yahweh Bore, the Lord creator. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner. You know, in the beginning, God. Elohim, no other. In the beginning, God. And, uh, you know, God is, there was no other. It was him. You know, there was no competition for him in the beginning. He wasn't in a race to get his product to market, like Alexander Graham Bell. I got to get there. I got to get the patent in. Got to get the patent in for grace. No, God was, yeah, God was there. And there was another sweetie really needs to down. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you trying to help me. But, yeah, it's okay. God is uh, eternally self-existent. Um, not like, unlike creation. Creation is dying. You know, we have the laws of entropy where things go from a state of being to a state of not being. Um, but we see that we get a picture of the Godhead uh, right here and that the word is plural and singular at the same time. That we get this picture of the Trinity right away. Maybe it's a little harder to see. Maybe we have to dig a little bit and we need to get a, a more full um, revelation of God through the scriptures to get a better idea. But... Um, it's, it's that way. Um, but, you know, sort of how we may say that, they're, uh, that they were of the same mind, or right? how we might come to an agreement of our, with ourselves, like you begin to consider a decision or uh, what you believe or anything like that. Hey, sweetie, can you sit a little further away? It's really kind of... I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I can only do one thing at a time. And you're so cute. I just came up with things. Yeah, it is beautiful. The sun setting is nice and pink and blue. That's right. But again, you know, we're going to see this picture later in Genesis as well. God begins to reveal himself a little later. Um, but I think this begins to show us that the Trinity is not just a New Testament doctrine that we need to tack on to our Old Testament ideas, but that it's foundational. That is from the beginning. That God is, is somehow plural and somehow singular at the same time. You know, obviously like a marriage, you know, come to a decision with your wife, you know, you're two people, but uh, you're coming to one agreement. And I think that God's complete fingerprint is clearly visible throughout the entirety of Scripture, and that definitely includes um, the 50 chapters of Genesis. But it says, in the beginning, God created, God created. And again, as believers, I'm sure you guys um, know this, but I think it's interesting to hear it again, that bara, this word bara, this idea of creating something out of nothing, that's something from something, you know, to create, to shape, to form. Um, to shape, to fashion, and create. And essentially the connotation there is that always with God as the subject, as the one doing the creation, Barr is never used as, you know, Bob down the street creating something, Bob Barr. No, it's, you know, it's always uh, God creating. And it means of heaven and earth. It means of individual man, of new conditions and circumstances. Honey, please, can you just sit over here? Of heaven and earth, of individual men, a new condition, circumstances, of transformations. But I think that's that's interesting because that's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus, but that's a picture of Genesis as well. That God creates heaven and earth, and then what does He do? He creates individual man, and then He creates 
uh, new conditions and circumstances when man messes up and he creates transformations uh, for man to be able to be restored. And we see that in Jesus, that Jesus creates a transformed man, a new man, um, uh, out of a man that wasn't uh, godly. It also means heaven and earth, the birth of something new, of miracles. Um, but interesting, this one, the last form is to be fat, to make yourself fat. And I thought that that was interesting, um, um, especially in this, in this connotation. Now, again, I'm kind of going on a limb of this, but um, obviously being fat isn't a picture of peak physical form. You know, on the cover of Muscle Magazine, isn't someone who's overweight. You know, it's someone with a lot of muscle. It's a very little body fat. Uh, but I think in some sense, if you look throughout history, it's a sign of royalty, a sign of wealth throughout history in different cultures that obviously you had enough plenty to eat that you were overweight. You had uh, obviously not a very strenuous job because, you know, you weren't lean and all leathery looking. I remember having a roommate who, uh, it's, he's a missionary in China now, um, but uh, when he was in the States, he worked for contracting and he would come home in the summer and look just like tanned leather from working on the roof, you know? And he wasn't fat, he was very lean. You know, the kid could eat more than I could, but he was never fat. Maybe he had good metabolism, but the guy did a tough job. Meanwhile, I work at a computer all day, so it's easy for me to be pudgy. <laughs> um, but I think in sense, if God's saying that, you know, if that is some connotation of this word, you know, uh, you know, don't we feel fat, full, or satisfied even, perhaps, when we create something? When we do something that's good and well, even in our own eyes? Um, uh, doesn't it urge us to do more, or create more? You know, that's the thing with being fat. You always want to eat more. <laughs> you know, your appetite keeps getting bigger and bigger. But I think in a sense that this is a rough picture of God creating uh, the heavens and the earth, that there's this joy and intrinsic nature of good, holy, like you have kids, you just want to keep having more kids. And you go, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it, but I just want more kids. <laughs> uh, uh, and you just get fat with kids, but he's a holy God. And I think that with that in holy God nature, there's this intrinsic value of wanting to create, of wanting to create, that creating things is a good thing. And I think that if he was not good, he would not create. Um, you know, we think of death and life. You know, good leaders tend to build up people, build up a nation, build up anything, but bad leaders tend to destroy. You know, we think of Hitler. You know, tomorrow is uh, the Jewish people, it's National Holocaust Remembrance Day. I think that's, I don't know, there's like a name for it, but uh, they remember the Holocaust. And we remember a bad leader who led people in the murder of millions of people. That's, that's, that's not a godly quality. That's, uh, in fact, the very opposite. Um, but with that, you know, love creates life, but lust or selfishness or hate destroys life. I mean, when you think about abortion, you know, this summer I was just reading that there's another seat possibly opening up on the Supreme Court. And so the guy who is possibly leaving is someone who's kind of swings either way. And yet a couple of the guys that are current president are looking to um, nominate her on the short list are very conservative. One guy, the second guy on the list that was mentioned in the article, is very outspoken against Roe versus Wade. I'm like, man, let's pray as believers that I don't care which guy it is, but that the guy gets in that's not a swing guy. That's a guy who's totally for life and creating life and for these little babies because, hey, there's still an opportunity here. There's still time to protect these babies from um, being destroyed. And a lot of people believe a lot of things about that, but all I have to say is they're wrong. You know, so it's a life, it's a baby. But with that, God has the absolute right to create and to destroy. And I think people begin to take God's, with that abortion, take God's role and think that they created that life. Mm. That they created that, and so they have the right, it's a woman's right to kill that life. But that's not the thing, God created that life. We just showed up, and God decides whether 
um, you know, that life will take hold or not, or that moment of uh, conception. Uh, but I think about my kids playing Legos. You know, if uh, one of them builds something out of Lego and then wants to take it apart, that's fine. You know, they don't want, they don't want it anymore. But if one of them builds something, the other one comes in and knocks it all down. I'll, I'll let you guess who that would be. Uh, but knocks it, <laughs> knocks it all down. You know, they don't have the right to do that. So they need to fix it. Or sometimes they'll be building something and it'll break. And they'll be like, oh no, they didn't want it to break. And so I'll come in and help them put it back together. But when it comes to God, he has the absolute right to destroy something. He has the absolute right to judge something. But he also has the absolute right to restore it after the fact. And we see that um, even in the first uh, couple chapters of Genesis. And that no one else has that right. No one else has that right. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, we do claim to be the sole proprietor, uh, sole proprietor of our universe, our destiny, that we can make ourselves, and we have a right to choose where we're going. My devotional this morning was talking about, you know, sometimes we think we have a right to determine where God is going to use us or how God is going to use us, and that's not the case. We have, we have no right to do that. But it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven. You know, maybe your translation says the heavens, um, but... Uh, King James says the heaven, and I'm just going to side with that because of the way I see scripture falling out here. Um, although, again, this could be a plural word, but it's uh, Shemayim, you know, it's not M. Night Shyamalan, but it's pretty close to it. <laughs> but it says that God created the heaven, the heavens, or the sky, the visible heavens, the sky, the boat of the stars, the visible universe, the sky, the atmosphere, etc. Heaven as the boat of God is a secondary definition. And for me, reading this, you know, I'm no Bible scholar, but I'm stretch of the imagination. But if you look at it in context, with the next couple of verses, I believe this to be heaven, the spiritual realm, um, and not the heaven, the universe, the sky, based on what we'll see uh, happens next. Uh, you know, where he says the earth, and then in verse 2 begins to talk about the earth. Um, so, uh, I'm no scholar. Read it for yourself, obviously. Study it for yourself. Let God speak to you about it. But for, and, you know, just for the thought of it, I think that, you know, if God is telling us how things came to be as relevant to man, what's relevant to us perhaps isn't heaven. In, the, in that sense, how heaven came to be, when exactly the angels did fall, when exactly were the angels created. God doesn't tell us that. We don't see that throughout Scripture. Um, uh, in fact, uh, you know, when Paul goes, or Paul says, you know, I know a man who's in heaven, he says, it would be unlawful for me to talk about those things. Because if God doesn't talk about it, well, I shouldn't either. And so all I know is, well, it says heaven and earth, and I believe that this is when God created heaven. If God does, in fact, tell us about when heaven was created, then uh, this would be it for me. Um, but again, you know, this is relevant to man, to God's perspective. And I think that it's important, again, to read Genesis as it is, like we talked about before, a truthful telling of what is relevant to us from God's perspective. And if God thinks I should know it, I should know it. And if God thinks I shouldn't know it, I shouldn't know it. You know, the Bible talks about being um, uh, wise concerning good and simple concerning evil. That We don't need to all know all the details of every evil deed that's out there. We just need to know that evil's out there to stay away from it. But in this case, we're not given an account of how the angels came to be, you know. Um, and again, I don't think we need to know those things as part of our relationship with God. I just need to know that, hey, there is heaven, and there is angels, and heaven is where God is, and heaven is where no sin is, and I want to go there someday. Um, I don't need to know. I can't even handle earthly things. How am I going to handle, you know, I can't even handle the account of creation of earth. How am I going to handle the account of creation of heaven? Um, let's turn to Jude real quick. Um, we're getting close here soon, but let's turn to Jude. Jude 
translation says, uh, Judah, bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, those who are called, sanctified by God, uh, the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Um, I just want to make sure that I didn't write down the wrong. Yes, okay, I just want to get the whole context here. Uh, verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And here's uh, the crux of it. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. That's, uh, generally speaking, of spiritual beings. Uh, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against them a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil, whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run grew to the inner Balaam for profit, and perished in their rebellion of Korah. That these guys, um, he's talking about, who are, begin to think that they can talk about spiritual matters, or spiritual beings, or heavenly things, like they understand it all. Like they have power over the enemy. And yet, uh, you know, there's people who would, Claim, oh, you need to pray against the devil. You need to talk against angels of demons. And all that. No, you know, you just, even Michael, an angel, powerful angel, said, no, the Lord rebuke you. Like, I don't have anything to do with this. God's the one who's going to do this. And I think that, um, you know, when we're talking about the heavenly realm, we need to be aware of those things. Uh, that, you know, we, we have what we have. God's told us what we, he's told us. And we shouldn't be going off into strange territory. Uh, because it's, uh, you know, we see the fruit of that strange territory, and that's um, being corrupt and eternal damnation. But it says here, and the earth, the last part of the verse, and the earth, and the word is Eretz, it's land, earth, the whole earth as opposed to a part, earth as opposed to heaven, and earth as its inhabitants. I think that's interesting, because again, I think that plays into what we're about to read in the next verses in, uh, in a future study. Um, and again, I believe this to be, at least in this context, what we would consider to be creation. Would be the universe, would be earth itself, would be the inhabitants of the earth. Um, you know, Revelation 4.6 talks about, uh, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne, around the throne, the four living creatures, full of eyes in front and back. We begin to get a, Revelation does give us a, a, an interesting picture of heaven, and people are afraid of it because, you know, we don't, not a, you know, it's, it's interpretable and it interprets itself, but we're afraid of it because it's spiritual. And I think, again, that's why God doesn't go into it here. He saves that kind of for the end. But uh, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast, over his image, over the mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And again, don't take this to be gospel or fact. Uh, you know, again, this is just one of those, like, playful theories that I have when I think consider Scripture and heaven and earth and creation and how it all fits together. Um, but I can imagine that perhaps the sea of glass is in some way a representation of all of creation. I'm not saying it is. But, I, you know, I would have to imagine that maybe it could be. Um, you know, again, I'm really out on a limb here. But, you know, if God is in heaven, as we'll see in the next verse, he's hovering over the face of the waters. You know, we've got a sea of glass. But 
I think that perhaps there's a connection there. Obviously, it's not like, you know, I remember being a little and thinking, you know, this is, maybe this is the truth, but, you know, we have Earth, we have the sky, and we have the universe, and then if you go far enough in the universe and you go out the edge of the universe, you're in heaven. So in heaven, there's this big ball or whatever shape it would be, and then God's outside it. I, I don't know that that's the case, because obviously there's dimensions and all this other stuff that we don't need to be concerned about, but I think that, you know, God is over creation. He is on his throne, and the earth is his footstool, as the scriptures say. And he's looking down over all creation. He can see us very clearly through that sea of glass. And yet, other scriptures talk about, um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, We now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am now that. When we begin to try and look back at God through a sinful, create, a fallen creation, and sin, and our own perspective, we kind of see dimly. You know, it's a little bit of tint on this side of the glass. But when we get back on the other side of the glass, like those saints who are above it, we see God clearly, and they've triumphed over the beast and over the world. You know, I think as we come here to a close that, um, you know, people can't handle Einstein's theory of relativity. You know, Einstein could barely handle it. You know, you had to be Einstein to handle it. Um, or multiple dimensions in math. They talk about there being, you know, you can get into interesting studies about how scientists now believe there are about 10 or 11 dimensions. Some of them are so small, they're like folded over. And, you know, some, some creationists believe that before the fall, there was access to all these dimensions, and then sin broke the dimensions, and all this stuff that, like, interesting, but, you know, I'll save it for Chuck Missler. <laughs> you know, like, it's a little heady. It doesn't really, maybe it'll edify you if you're an intellectual. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll just confuse you, and, you know, I, what? What did I get out of that? And that's what I, I don't want to get out of the study. I want to get God out of the study. You know, and I think that uh, even in these things, like, only small children... And people trained in these advanced levels of math can understand these math equations they've, they've proven. I think the same with God. It's like, man, let's just be like children. He wants us to be like children and take it for what it says. You know, he has no interest in explaining how molecules work here. He could have. He could have broken it down and given us a science textbook, but instead he says, it's not, yeah, I, you know, I'll give you your brain. You'll figure it out eventually. But you don't need to know that here in our relationship. It's not, it's not important to the salvation relationship. So for me, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm going to take that at face value. You know, if you want to bring me theory, you want to bring me some knowledge that goes along with that, great. But at the end of the day, all I need to know is that God created the heavens and the earth. Um, you know, could it be more complicated? Sure. Could it be just that simple? Because nothing's complicated to God. God said, let there be light as we'll see. And all the amazing, is it a, is it a proton? Is it a, is it a, rather, is it a particle? Or is it a wave? Is it a bolt? You know, all these things. But God just said light. And all, this amazing, all these amazing things happened. And I think we really begin to miss the point when we try and figure out something perhaps that we'll never be able to figure out. The side of heaven. You know, like my kids ask me what I'm doing in the garage. I don't, you know, tell them in minutia, uh, well, I had to get a 12 millimeter socket and get on there and it didn't quite fit. So I had to shave it. You know, like, you know, or when I'm at work, I'm like, well, I had to type this line of code and but the syntax wasn't correct. You know, like, no, I'd say I was on the computer. I was making making a picture. <laughs> you know, I was in the garage fixing the car. You know, I tell them what they need to know. They don't. You know, later on when they're older and they want to do that, I'll, I'll I'll help them learn the little bit I know. But again, the important part here as we close is not that we is that we don't miss what God is saying to us. Again, I think these things can distract us. Not that, I love to watch Chuck Minister. I love to watch these things. You know, there's this guy Ken Hovind who got. Uh, he wasn't paying his taxes, so rightfully he got arrested. He was claiming to be a missionary. and Yeah, I get it, but you still got to pay your taxes. Um, but uh, he had, and, uh, he's got some very interesting theories that, right or wrong, they're still interesting. Um, 
But again, you know, in the beginning, God made everything. Him. No one else. I believe that through and through. And not spontaneously coming about by itself. The Big Bang or, you know, this theory of banging and coming back together. You know, I believe the Big Bang is at the end. When Peter clearly tells us that it's going to uh, go out with a bang. You know, again, but what an evil, dumb, and foolish joke to think that all this came about by itself. Does anything come about by itself in our life? No. I mean, nothing comes about by itself. Um, there's always a reason, whether it's our doing or someone else's doing or just because of the world we live in, but there's always a reason. Um, and I think that this is the important foundation, that there is a reason, there is a purpose. And first, uh, sorry, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, Now he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The creation, God brings something out of nothing, and with Jesus he brings something out of nothing. We're nothing, we're dirt. We're unholy, we're evil, but through the cross, we're made new. And we're able to be brought um, to the place where God would have us to be in a relationship with him. And that's what God wants us to know. God doesn't, when we get to heaven, it's not, it's not a science test, right? You know, uh, James and I just recently took the hunter safety course. And I was all kind of paranoid about, like, am I gonna, is it going to be hard? Am I going to pass? What happens if I don't pass? And they have these things online where you can take a test. I'm like, nah, you know, I'm just going to go to the class. And, and do it. And I get there, and they're like, only three people have failed the entire time we've given this class, and I give it like weekly. Um, and they're like, that's because they didn't show up for the test. <laughs> you know, and basically, they want to help you. They don't give you the answer, but they help you, and because they want you to learn. They want you to get the right answer, so you learn it. Um, and I think that's the same thing with God. He wants us to get the right answer. He wants us to learn it. He, the only people who don't go to heaven are the people who don't show up, because they just wouldn't let God be who he is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this time together. We thank you that you give us to it simply, and yet even in those simple words, there's so much we can glean. We could spend our whole life on just Genesis 1-1, and God, there would be a lot to get from there, but God, you've given us so much more than that. So you help us to move on from 1-1 and get all the way to the end of Revelation. And, and uh, But in that, God, may we not just be puffed up with knowledge. May we be uh, humbled and drawn close to you. And God, would you forgive our sin? Uh, you have forgiven our sin, God, but we just accept that forgiveness and walk with you in it and from it. And God, do wash us and cleanse us and help us to uh, live from that. And God, may you just continue to lay a firm foundation in us uh, that Jesus should be the cornerstone of our life and our faith. And that God comes to him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yes, sweetie. Uh,